Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my guest host, Dr. John Barlow at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. John, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks, Peter. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the Mayo Clinic, or the institutions of many of our guests. So today we are extremely fortunate. We're sitting in Dr. Roger Van Riet's home here in uh, Antwerp, Belgium. Um, we've just had two days in the operating room with Roger and his partner Olivier, and it's been phenomenal. We've seen a bunch of great surgeries. We've learned a bunch of new techniques. They've been consummate hosts. Um, we've certainly enjoyed Antwerp. So um, thank you so much for hosting us. This is the last stop of our traveling fellowship, and I think both John and I feel a little sad to see it ending, although I think we're both happy to go being back, be going back to our families. So I want to start with something you and I were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, Rajay, you were telling us a little bit about you know, lateral instability, how certainly with frank instability, you're still addressing that open with the kind of standard lateral collateral ligament reconstruction, but that for more mild instabilities, you're addressing those arthroscopically now. There's not a lot of literature about that. Tell us, who is that patient? How do you do that? So, um, yeah, thank you for that question. And uh, I know we talked about this before. So. I love arthroscopy just from the go. Um, I think that's a, it's a great technique and it's, a, it's an emerging technique. And when I started about 15, 20 years ago, uh, not many people were doing it. And, and so I was able to, um, to be innovative. And I think that's some, one of the things that I really liked. And um, although open, open um, instability surgery, in the, at least in the elbow, is still the gold standard, I think, um, we started doing them arthroscopically. And the first time I did it was, was by mistake, like I told you. And uh, there was a patient who had a montagio fracture dislocation 30 years before. He had a very bad degenerative elbow. His radial head was still dislocated. And when I went in to clean up his elbow, uh, I noticed a gross instability, which I didn't really realize before at the, uh, at the clinical exam. And then I remembered reading a, um, reading a, a paper from uh, Bali Savoie. And... Um, about arthroscopic stabilization of the lateral side. And I did it, it went really nice, and uh, we all high-fived after the surgery. And then in the evening I went home and I read the paper and, I, and it turned out it did something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, but it worked. So the guy was happy and I started doing it more and more, initially in, in relatively minor instability where I thought that that real uh, instability surgery with uh, grafts and with with anchors or bone tunnels was a little bit too much for these patients and they did well too and then, and then we expanded our indications of course and then we uh, um, now to a point where we are very happy to do terrible triads arthroscopically uh, lateral instability arthroscopically there's a uh, I don't do medial instability arthroscopically yet because uh, because the only nerve is there of course but uh, it has evolved a lot and we're just published our um, short-term results and we're in the process of publishing our 10-year results now the first 20 patients that we did so it'll be in literature soon. That's great. And the other thing we saw was a more um, gross or frank instability where you did a lateral ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you've gone through an evolution and have that operation down to a science. Describe for the audience kind of your, your steps and approach to that procedure. Yeah. So of course, there's, there's always a classical approach with bone tunnels, with, with uh, autograft, allograft, and there's a lot of uh, Discussion about it. I'm not sure if, if, if that's one technique that really stands out in in the literature that has better results than another technique. But what we do now is we um, 
Um, I started using a sort of a, a, a bone button, like an ender button type with a loop on it that I could tighten. And I thought it was a good idea to do this in both the ulna and the humerus. And uh, it was very difficult to flip that button in the, in the ulna. So I went back to more or less more traditional uh, way of doing it. So I do make it a tunnel in the ulna and I use the, this particular button in the, in the humerus through a, through a smaller bone tunnel than, uh, than, uh, uh, than typical. So a six millimeter bone tunnel, a button at the posterior side of the humerus and a tunnel in the, uh, in the a real tunnel in the ulna. And then, uh, and then we can tighten, really tighten the LCR complex, fold it back to each other uh, on itself and then suture it again. It was a beautiful technique to see, and I think we both um, really learned a ton uh, from you about lateral instability and the various ways to, to manage it. Olivia, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've, um, we saw two arthroplasties with you, both of which were beautifully done. You know, you've contributed a ton to our understanding of um, particularly navigation and PSI. I think you guys in Belgium had a real head start because Materialize is located here. Tell us a little bit about your evolution with that and how, um, how that's kind of driven us forward. Yeah. <clears throat> so I was, we were very fortunate to have uh, Materialize just next door. Um, for, of course, um, we were always intrigued by the glenoids and, and how to get it done uh, properly. And all of a sudden, this technology came up. Uh, I was, I must say, very skeptic about it. Uh, but I wanted to give it a shot. And so we, um, we did about, I think, more than 80 patients uh, in a row, consecutive uh, 80 patients. Um, to understand um, the technique, to understand its accuracy. And uh, my final decision was, that it, and we did publish that uh, a long time ago, uh, that it is really um, accurate. It's really precise and it's probably today the best technology that is out there. That being said, I do not use it anymore um, as, a, as a standard procedure. I do use a lot of preoperative planning, 3D planning. And then when I want to execute the plan, I may just use standard instrumentation for easier cases. And I go back to PSI for more complex cases. That's great. And the other thing that I think we saw, we, we've seen um, the explosion of the reverse across, uh, across the world, essentially, both in Europe and the United States. And it sounds like you still have um, uh, pretty specific indications for doing anatomic and really favor anatomic for the right patient. Can you tell us about who those patients are and what that looks like in your practice? Yeah, so I'm still, um, I'm still uh, probably 60-40 or at least 70-30 um, reverse versus anatomic. I think um, we should not forget this art. Uh, in a primary osteoarthritis, um, in a patient that is um, um, active, is uh, below 65, uh, has no other issues, uh, is, is, is able to do the rehabilitation because of course the rehabilitation is a little bit different, different. it's almost more like a cuff repair than, than anything else. Um, I, I, I will definitely still go for an anatomic. I, don't, I do not fear uh, the rotator cuff uh, in a primary osteoarthritis, even in a 65-year-old. I think if you, if you um, re, uh, rehab them well, they'll have the best results. Uh, the best primary um, or the, the best anatomic still outperforms the best reverse in my hands. Um, but uh, on the other hand, if you, uh, if you do not feel very um, comfortable with the technique and you're sort of debating, the patient is a little bit older, I cannot really prove that uh, reverse is worse than anatomic. But in, in my hands today, I still uh, try to do as many as I can. I think it's great to see that as a little bit of a pushback to the, the trend we've certainly seen. You know, we saw today, Ranger, um, that you were doing it just to biceps. 
you gave us a little bit of insight into your diagnostic maneuvers that you do in clinic. So a patient comes in, they've got anterior elbow pain, you're trying to figure out, is it a partial thickness tear? Tell us a little bit about the tests you do there, you've published on this, and then what, what, what really guides you in that regard before you get advanced imaging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so what we found in, in uh, the diagnosis of complete distal bicep tendon tear is, is easy. The hook test uh, outperforms any other test, and if the hook test is positive, you're, you're 99.9% sure that's a, that's a distal bicep tear. But Before you move on, the hook test, tell us, medial, lateral, does it matter? It does matter. So initially, uh, as I told you, they initially was described uh, to hook it from the medial side. But um, um, there are patients where the Lacertus is still intact. And then if you hook it from the medial side, you might get a false positive, uh, false negative test, sorry. And uh, so Sean initially described it medial and then, and then went lateral. And very quickly though, and then the lateral side is, uh, is important. So you, what you do is you ask the patient to look at their own hand. You abduct, flex and abduct the shoulder. Elbow 90 degrees, ask the patient to look at their own hand so automatically that the forearm is supinated and then you try to hook it like a coat hanger and uh, in, an, in an intact biceps, even in a big guy, uh, you can feel that biceps tendon. If you're not sure, compare it to the other side and if it's not there, then it's, uh, then it's definitely torn. Irrespective of what the radiologist says because they're quite often they're, they're um, wrong. Um, I was looking for a better word. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> uh, but there was a problem with the diagnosing partial tears and uh, partial tears, uh, tendonitis, uh, bursitis. They're more or less the same. So basic patients have vague anterior elbow pain. Um, not necessarily bodybuilders. They can be workmen. They can they can be uh, all all walks of life basically. And um, there wasn't really a good test for it. So what we what we did from our I was trained by by uh, by Greg Bain, who's obviously one of the pioneers now in in bicep surgery, and and uh, Simon Bell in uh, in Melbourne. And they planted a seed in my head that um, we know that that biceps is very important for rotation of the forearm. And um, so what we found that when we tested resisted supination with the elbow, uh, sorry, resisted uh, flexion with the elbow supinated, forearm supinated, and the hand relaxed, that's relatively painful, but sometimes not painful at all and there's not a lot of pain. Then if you pronate the forearm and you do exactly the same with exactly the same resistance, it's way more painful. And that's because the biceps rotates along the tuberosity and the pathological tissue gets pushed against the tuberosity. And then when you contract, that's very painful. And this we, we, we tested this together with, uh, with Peter Kakebeke and uh, uh, we, we very quickly had, um, had a lot of patients and we tested it in healthy subjects and, and patients with other elbow pathologies and we found our sensitivity and specificity 100%. And we were actually quite disappointed because we thought, you know, that's impossible. No test is 100%. And um, having said that, now we've been using it for two or three years and we've had some false positives and negatives. But um, back then we, we, were, um, we were kind of happy it worked. And uh, this is the test that we now use. If the test is positive, we try to get an MRI. And um, you, can, you can debate whether you use FAPS view or normal view, Superman view. And um, we also did a study there where we looked at the difference between FAPS and Superman. And for the diagnosis of distal bicep tendon problems, it's not necessary to get a FAPS view. For those of you who don't know, FAPS is flexion, abduction, supination. It's just a different way of, of being in the MRI scanner. So for a yes or no diagnosis, it's no difference. But to grade the diagnosis, so we asked our radiologist to look at tendonitis, partial tear, partial tear more than 25%, more than 50%. 
We asked two different radiologists to look at it in different times, and the inter-rater and intra-rater variability was uh, much better with the FabView. So uh, for grading a biceps tendon injury, the FabView is important for not grading, uh, for just being yes or no, um, a Superman view is sufficient, but our, we call it Antwerp biceps test, and actually every time I present it, we have a picture of Olivier and me in front of an Antwerp sign, um, and uh, unfortunately the Journal of Hand Surgery didn't accept that, so it's now called Distal Biceps Provocation Test, which is obviously not as nice a name, but um, uh, the Distal Biceps Provocation Test is sufficient to diagnose distal biceps problems. I'm calling it the Interrupt Distal Biceps Tendon Test from now on. I like that better anyway. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I like that too. And you, you talked a little bit about your um, approach to treatment of that with early endoscopy and yeah. thoughts about partial uh, repair, debridement, partial repair, and then completion and uh, repair. Where are you now with your surgical treatment? Let's say somebody has gone through extensive non-operative management for a partial distal biceps uh, tear and they're six months out and they're not improving. What's your algorithm there? Still conservative treatment. So conservative treatment is, is number one. Um, but if the patient is, is, has enough pain, it's not improving, feels that their function is really bad, and, and, uh, and they've had minimum six months of, uh, of good uh, training, good physiotherapy, then, then they become a candidate for surgery. And I used to do a lot of distal bicep endoscopies, and I, I, I thought that was, that was great. But um, I've weaned away from it a little bit because it, it doesn't really change my... my uh, um, my treatment that much anymore. So I used to have an algorithm where I said, okay, um, obviously tendonitis, you just deep right, still do that. If it's less than 25% uh, um, ruptured, still deep right, and I still do that. But I had a, 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 an in-between step, where between 25 and 50% 50, 50 uh, rupture, I used to use an anchor, did this endoscopically, very nice technique, and I, I, as I told you, I think shoulder surgeons are way better at this than me as an elbow surgeon. But an endoscopic technique, and it fixed, but they were, they took, first of all, they took ages to heal and they were less predictable than, a, than an endobutton technique that you saw today. So I became more aggressive with just taking them down, depriving the bad, the bad tendon and, uh, and just putting an endobutton in. And so I've, I've gone, I've not gone fully away from, from endos endoscopy, biceps endoscopy, but I've done, I'm doing less and less of them because it, it doesn't have a big impact on my, uh, diagnostic is great, but it doesn't have a big impact on, on my final treatment. That's great. It's it's um, somewhat reassuring for me to hear you say that you're not doing a lot of biceps endoscopy because I don't know how to do that. And I wasn't really anxious to learn. <laughs> so it's nice. <laughs> it's <laughs> nice to hear the baby doesn't have a huge role. Mm -hmm. um, moving on, Olivia, I wanted to ask you. You know, we watched you do a um, we watched you do a Latterge just perfectly. You talked to us a little bit about your evolution with bone blocks. You know, throughout Europe, we've seen a lot of different approaches to bone grafting the front of the glenoid. Tell us where you think we are now or where you are right now in your practice for that, that particular issue. Yeah, I think the shoulder instability is the most intriguing clinical uh, problem. It's also sort of an unsolved enigma, and it's going back and forth. Um, and I can tell you my, um, my, my experience since I was a resident, my very first shoulder surgery that I saw was the best ever performed open bank art repair by a very famous uh, Belgian surgeon, my senior partner, Heerte Kledek. And that's where I thought, wow, I want to do shoulder surgery. So that's one, that's my first anecdote. Um, we obviously left uh, open bank art repairs and we did about the same uh, surgery, uh, arthroscopic, 
um, in a with a nice technique, minimal invasive, beautiful surgery as well. Um, we did that for a long time, and then we started to look at our own data. And we had a with a recurrence rate of about eight to nine percent, uh, which was good. But then when we stratified uh, per subgroup and per contact sport, we we were really amazed that we had about twenty percent recurrence rate in. Um, in contact athletes, and so uh, we we discussed this um, um, these days. If you're a surgeon and you're doing a good job in 80% of your patients, um, you're, you're not really happy with that, are you? And um, so we we shifted towards uh, allergy, open allergy, for many of our patients. And every year I do more and more, and I do less and less arthroscopic bankers because I cannot live that much anymore with 80% um, success. Uh, with Ladarger, we have much more. We have such a good uh, results. It's such a great operation. I call it often uh, the Ferrari of uh, the shoulder instability um, surgery. Do you always need your Ferrari uh, to um, to go to the grocery store? You just use it on the highway. That's your choice. But uh, if you ask me, um, I'm much more towards uh, Ladarger these days. So I, I think I shifted almost to like 70% of anterior instability cases doing Ladarger. Well, certainly, I think that's been something John and I have both seen that's a big difference between what's happening right now in the United States and what's happening in Europe. And I think like many things over time, that probably will filter across the Atlantic. I want to thank both of you um, for, again, your kind hospitality and everything you've taught us. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be given the opportunity to visit you. It's been a great visit. And um, thank you again for your hospitality and your time. Thank you for coming. It's, it's an honor for us to, uh, to host you guys. And we learn, we learn a lot from you. And... Uh, I think every time the, the American fellows come here, we're very happy that people uh, take the time to come all the way here and, and, and see us. Absolutely. So it's thank a, you. It's a great fellowship and uh, we're very honored to, uh, to have you here. Thanks. Thank you.